Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. Thanks for joining us today. Our mission here at Open Your Eyes is to help all of us open our eyes a bit more to the possibilities and realities all around us. And one of those realities is that you are filled with immense potential. And sometimes seeing things in a new way can unlock that potential. So today, wherever you are as you listen to this podcast, I hope you get a new perspective of how you can think and live better. Now, part of our mission is to add to the collection of podcasters who are providing content that uplifts, encourages, and helps people live better. And as a result, we don't sell ad space. You won't have to listen to ads on this podcast. The costs are paid because we just want to be of help. So if you find these podcasts helpful, you could help by sharing these podcasts with a friend. Word of mouth helps us further our mission. So just share the podcast and say something like, I thought you might enjoy this podcast. Have a great day. And that would help us expand our mission and keep doing a little bit of good. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about whether or not we are entitled. You may remember this story. The airport had been packed for hours. The usually crowded holiday travel conditions were exacerbated by weather-related delays and cancellations at other airports. Hundreds of frustrated travelers were scrambling from one gate to another as they sought alternate ways to get home. At one gate, the line to talk to the agent stretched for more than 50 yards. One of the passengers in the line was a well-dressed and obviously impatient man. As he glanced at his watch with ever-increasing frequency and tapped his foot at an ever-increasing rate, it was obvious to all around him that he was not a person who was accustomed to waiting. Finally, the man could stand it no longer. He bolted from his place in line and stomped up to the gate. Pounding his hand on the desk, he bellowed, Do you know who I am? Well, an awkward silence instantly gripped the area. The agent at the desk calmly picked up her telephone and, in a steady voice, said, We may need a little additional help at gate 19. There's a man down here who doesn't know who he is. While we may or may not always know who we are, one thing is for certain. Delays, cancellations, interruptions, and a host of other life-altering circumstances are bound to come about in our life. And the question is, are you and I entitled to special dispensation or exemption from life's interruptions? You know, the award-winning biographer David McCullough once taught key events in history like the Revolutionary War were not predestined. He said this, nothing ever had to happen the way it happened. Any great event in history could have taken a different direction. You see, we're all taught history as if it were predetermined. But things like the Revolutionary War, the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution came about because of character, determination, hard work, and even some chance. It was the individual choices and actions of the people at the time that gave birth to the country where some of us live. They were far from entitled. 
Abigail Adams, writing one of her many letters to her husband, John, who was off in Philadelphia working on the Declaration of Independence, wrote, Posterity, who are to reap the blessings, will scarcely be able to conceive the hardships and sufferings of their ancestors. And the truth is, we don't conceive what they went through. My point is this. Great things happened in the history of the United States because of the courage and sacrifices of those who lived in those times. And great things will only happen in our country today, in your life and my life today, through the courage and sacrifices of those who live today. Sometimes, I think we get to imagining that we are entitled to a great life, or a free country, or an economy that is always strong. But inflation comes and goes, interest rates rise and fall, peace in the world is disrupted, and in our individual lives, hardships come about. The outcome of all these things depends on you and me and all of us. Will we exercise character? Will we act in the face of difficulty? You know, recently I heard an employee say to their employer, they had to raise her wage because gas prices have increased. And with the added cost to her budget, she can't make her debt payments. Now, maybe the company needs to raise her wage to retain her if she's a good employee, or maybe they feel a duty to loyal employees. But it's interesting that she believes she is entitled. Because circumstances got difficult, her company or someone else is responsible for her well-being. And the truth is that no one owes you or me a living. And no one is going to hand you or me a great life. At some point, we have to do what it takes to create that life. In New York City, on August 27, 1776, a British armada carrying tens of thousands of British soldiers landed on Staten Island, preparing for their assault on Brooklyn. The Americans who were part of the Revolutionary Army were hardly an army. They were young farm boys and were serving and suffering in the course of the war. Their leaders were young, inexperienced men. Washington had never commanded an army before. Nevertheless, he was appointed general. He was trustworthy, but he made many mistakes. Nothing about taking on the British was easy. It wasn't easy to recruit or keep soldiers, to reinforce them with supplies, and most of the time, pay arrived late or never arrived at all. They were poor, had little winter clothing, were underpaid and untrained. The Revolutionary War would last eight and a half years. And during the conflict, 1% of the population would die. In the months preceding the British invasion of New York, Washington had left Boston and headed to New York in anticipation of the British coming. And Washington did his best to fortify New York, but there were weaknesses. Discipline was lacking in the army. Men deserted and went home. And when the British arrived in the harbor, the Americans were awed and intimidated by the sight of the British fleet. One man remarked that it looked like all London afloat. When the British landed on Staten Island with over 10,000 men, Washington thought this was a diversion. He was wrong. As the fighting began, Washington tried to inflict damage, but his defensive arrangement was flawed. He had split his forces between Brooklyn and Manhattan, and his line of defense was easily penetrated by the British. The Americans 
were soundly beaten. Over 2,000 men were killed. And the Americans only escaped due to a miraculous retreat in the middle of the night across the river in a Dunkirk type of small boat armada. Luckily, the wind that had been blowing downriver that had kept the British from sailing their fleet upriver stopped long enough for the Americans' escape. Now, the escape across the river in the middle of the night was organized and led by a man named John Glover from Marblehead, Mass. During the crossing, Boats were loaded down so that the gunwales were only a few inches above the water. There were no running lights, no motors, no walkie-talkies to talk back and forth. But they did it. It was character and struggle and work and chance and providence that enabled their escape. Afterwards, the men were totally demoralized. They had been defeated. They were soaking wet. They were cold. They were hungry. They had lost pathetically at Kipps Bay. They lost again in a great battle at Fort Washington when nearly 3,000 of our troops and all of their equipment were taken captive, and they lost again at Brooklyn. David McCullough would write, We are taught to honor and celebrate those great men who wrote and voted for the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia. But none of what they committed themselves to, their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honor, None of these noble words about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, about men being created equal, none of that would have been worth any more than the paper it was written on had it not been for those who were fighting to make it happen. Now, with only 3,000 men left to fight the British, Washington looked at his situation. Most of the politicians had fled Philadelphia. It was obvious to most that the British would march on to Philadelphia and nothing was going to stop them. Almost everyone concluded that the war was lost, except for Washington. He decided to do something unexpected. He attacked. On Christmas night, Washington and his ragged army ferried up the river nine miles. It was done in the face of a severe winter storm of sleet and snow. The weather was awful and the men were in pitiful condition. But Washington organized the men, artillery, supplies, food, and other needed goods, and ferried them in small boats up the Delaware. Now, Emanuel Lutz painted the famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware. While his painting incorrectly shows no supplies or artillery in the boats, and has other inaccuracies, the spirit of the painting is an apt portrayal of Washington's determination in the face of impossibilities. Worse than the river journey was the march to Trenton during the night. It was bitterly cold. Washington wanted to surprise the Hessians as they awoke in the morning. You see, when the war started, Britain turned to Germany for manpower to fight the war. 34,000 Germans fought in the war, and more than half were from Hesse Cassel and called Hessians. Well, at first light on December 26th, Washington was on the outskirts of Trenton and split his men into two columns, one led by Nathaniel Green and the other by John Sullivan. The Hessians were exhausted, drunk, and surprised, and they were beaten and surrendered. And Washington, through his strategy, gained a victory and needed supplies. He would go on and copy the same strategy to win at Princeton. Now, it's likely that without this victory, the Revolutionary War would not have been won. It would have been easy for Washington to retreat after he lost at Brooklyn, but he didn't. 
Perhaps Washington was desperate. Perhaps he had learned from his past mistakes. Perhaps he was inspired. But I believe he had the mindset to persevere, especially when things got tough. He knew he, they, were not entitled to freedom. They had to earn it. At the end of the Revolutionary War, Washington was perhaps the most powerful man in America. He could have used that power for himself. But Washington knew Congress was the boss. When the war was at last over, Washington, in one of the most important events in our entire history, turned back his command to Congress. He didn't seek power for himself. He was not entitled. And if you travel to the U.S. Capitol, in the rotunda hangs a painting by John Trumbull. This depicts a scene on December 23, 1783, in which Washington resigned his commission as commander-in-chief of the army and hands command over to Congress. When George III heard that George Washington might do this, he said, if he does, he will be the greatest man in the world. Now, here's the thing. I worry that my children and you and me tend to think that the freedoms we enjoy to speak freely, to worship in the manner we choose, to have free and fair elections, and many other things were somehow bestowed upon us because we are entitled. We stand under the protection of these freedoms and criticize and demand what we think we deserve, that somehow we are owed these rights without thinking that maybe we, like those who have come before us, must do our part in the battle for freedom. And having said all of that, here's why I bring this up today. Sometimes we think we are entitled. Entitled to freedom, entitled to a happy life, to a job, to benefits, and all of the other things that we enjoy. But the truth is, we are entitled to very little. And I believe the person who rids themselves of the entitlement mentality and begins to take responsibility for what is before them is, in the end, the happier person. And in the end, he or she finds something powerful. Now, let me give you a timely example. Here we are in the highest inflationary times we've experienced recently. Right now, in the U.S., the annual inflation rate is 7.9%. Now, Canada is slightly behind, but it's at its highest point since 1991. In the U.S., that means everything you pay for is on average 8% more expensive than it was one year ago. It also means if you are earning the same wage as last year, you just took an 8% pay cut. But here's the thing. In the prior seven years, inflation has been lower than at any other seven-year period in the last 50 years. What were you and I doing in the last seven years? Were you and I doing everything possible to get out of debt? Or were we spending what we earned? You see, there are a number of people and families who spent the last seven years sacrificing, strategizing, and doing what was necessary to get entirely out of debt. Today, they have no credit card payment, no car payment, student loans, or mortgage. Today, when they get their monthly paycheck, they only pay for the direct things like food and gas and utilities. They have excess cash flow. And with that excess, they can weather the storms that come, whether it be inflation, recession, or other struggles. Additionally, over the last seven years, others, 
have been investing wisely. They took advantage of the stock markets. In 2021, the S&P 500 gave investors a return of 28.5%. The year before, 18%. The year before that, 31%. In fact, the last seven years have averaged 15.5% annually. So if you invested over the last seven years, you earned 15.5% return each year on your money. Stated another way, if you invested $1 million in the S&P 500 seven years ago, today it is worth $2.6 million. You see, Washington understood something at Trenton. You must seize your opportunities, and those opportunities usually require sacrifice. And the same goes for those who worked a second job, chose not to eat out, eliminated cable TV, refinanced their mortgage, read books instead of buying movies, and made the sacrifices necessary to pay off debt and not use their credit cards for unnecessary spending. And today, is that sacrifice worth it? They would say absolutely yes. And they would say they were not entitled. They had to work for the freedom that they've created. Now, the following story has been told by every minister in every church in America. But here I go to share it with you again to make a point. Years ago, a farmer owned land along the Atlantic seacoast. He constantly advertised for hired hands, and most people were reluctant to work on farms along the Atlantic. You see, they dreaded the awful storms that raged across the Atlantic, wreaking havoc on the buildings and crops. As the farmer interviewed applicants for the job, he received a steady stream of refusals. Finally, a short, thin man, well past middle age, approached the farmer. Are you a good farmhand? The farmer asked him. Well, I can sleep when the wind blows, answered the man. Puzzled by his answer, the farmer, desperate for help, hired him anyway. And the little man worked well around the farm, busy from dawn to dusk, and the farmer felt satisfied with the man's work. Then one night, the wind howled loudly in from offshore. Jumping out of bed, the farmer grabbed a lantern and rushed next door to the hired hand's sleeping quarters. He shook the little man and yelled, Get up, a storm is coming. Tie things down before they blow away. But the man rolled over in bed and never awoke. Enraged by the lack of response, the farmer was tempted to fire him on the spot. But instead, he hurried outside to prepare for the storm. But to his amazement, he discovered that all the haystacks had been covered with tarps. The cows were in the barn, the chickens were in the coops, and the doors were barred. The shutters were tightly secured and everything was tied down. Nothing could blow away. The farmer then understood what his hired had meant when he said, I can sleep when the wind blows. Now, getting out of debt is not the only way we need to be prepared for the days ahead. But for those who have done it, these people took action to change their circumstances. And that action is helping them today. They do not have an entitlement mentality. Now, these principles apply to our children as well. As we look to develop kids who are less entitled, who possess the attitude of taking responsibility for their future, we must remember to prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. You see, too often, we're about making things easy for our children. We want schools to cater to their needs, friends to always treat them nicely, coaches to put them in the starting rotation, 
club and church leaders to pay particular attention to them, and on it goes. But the truth is that the road of life is difficult, and our children need to be equipped to handle that difficult road. The authors of Coddling of the American Mind argue there are several untruths that we are teaching our children. The first is that whatever kills you makes you weaker. This means that we're trying to protect our children to their detriment. I had a good friend that used to teach a seminar, and in that seminar, he'd talk about his philosophy when he was a young man. And that philosophy was no pain, no pain. It wasn't no pain, no gain. It was no pain, no pain. You see, he concluded that if anything was painful, he would avoid it. No pain, no pain. And as a result, he ran from difficult things most of his early adult life. And he soon learned that he did more damage to himself because he never experienced pain. The authors tell the story of the LEAP study, which stands for Learning Early About Peanut Allergies. The study followed 640 infants who were at high risk of developing peanut allergies because they had eczema or other allergies. The researchers divided the group into two halves. One half of the group was told to avoid any peanut products with their kids. The other half were given a supply of snacks made of peanut butter and puffed corn and told to give it to their kids three times a week. At the age of five, all of the children were tested. Those kids that had been protected from peanuts, 17% of them had peanut allergies. Those that were given peanut products, only 3% had developed an allergy. This makes sense, right? The immune system is a miraculous evolutionary system and designed to learn rapidly from early experience. You see, exposure to the peanuts helped them develop the strength to not have peanut allergies. Now, there are similarities in many parts of life to this study. I work for a nonprofit, and part of our mission is to provide opportunities for kids to be exposed to hands-on science learning early in life. We have an insectarium, museums, and other discovery centers for kids. Now, why focus on giving kids hands-on science learning early in life? Well, the unique thing about science or math is there is usually an answer. And that means even if a child doesn't initially know the answer, with the right encouragement, if they stay persistent, they can discover it. Hands-on science allows kids to take risks, explore solutions, understand that they may not always be correct, seek input, create hypotheses, and try things out. And this strengthens a child's emotional resilience and confidence in their own ability to work and discover answers. Now, over time, these kids gain a growth mindset. Their brains become wired to the fact that they can face ambiguity and work through it. They can be wrong at first and persevere until they are right. And here's the thing. In our summer camps or after-school programs, when we present a problem to a child, we don't answer questions for them. If they ask a question, we help them form a hypothesis and test the idea to see if it's right. And most of the time, it's not. But we encourage and praise their attempts and process. We help guide them to the answer. You see, in a Google and get the answer world that we live in today, kids think that they're entitled to answers and their perseverance muscles for staying in the search of something are underdeveloped. 
Additionally, research shows that kids who engage in science early in life improve their overall literacy. Why? Well, in science, kids pose questions, process, analyze, solve, and communicate what they discover. And expanding a child's vocabulary to include scientific words and terms creates a level of confidence in their ability to learn science. And here's what we found. Kids who develop this ability to struggle through answers have less anxiety and stress, increased attention capacity, fewer symptoms of attention deficit disorders, more confidence, ability to make independent decisions. They have improved physical and emotional health, and they perform and have a better attitude in school. So, our nonprofit targets economically disadvantaged kids to provide this science learning. We are building the child for the long road, not the road for the child. Science Daily reports that this exposure to this method of learning is as important as intelligence in a child's future academic performance. In her book, Mindset, renowned Stanford psychologist Carol Dweck says, it's not intelligence, talent, or education that sets successful people apart. It's their mindset or the way they approach life's challenges. If you have a fixed mindset, you believe capabilities and potential is fixed, that people are smart or not, capable or not. And if you believe capability is fixed, you and our kids hold themselves back by engaging only in activities that you or they think or perceive they can do well at. On the other hand, a growth mindset provides the confidence that even though you don't know the answers, you can stay engaged and work to find them. Now, Dweck says not to give your kids praise like you were smart or talented. This creates a belief that things are fixed, smart or not smart, talented or not talented. Instead, reinforce their effort or the process they used. You see, by praising their efforts, you're reinforcing what they need on the road of life, perseverance, so they become more motivated to keep striving towards goals when things are difficult. Next, there are other ways of living that tend to create a mindset that we are entitled. And one of those is what I hear often in the world or on social media today. It's this. If our kids feel a certain way, we shouldn't ask our kids or ourselves to suppress our feelings. We should let our feelings guide us. For example, if something you undertake causes you stress and anxiety, some of today's philosophies suggest that you should avoid those things so you don't have stress or anxiety. And if this is taken to its extreme, over time, our kids are led to believe that their situation is hopeless because at every turn they feel anxiety or stress. And as we continue to overindulge them or ourselves, they or we begin to grow up with narcissistic assumptions that we don't have to fight through difficulties and deserve everything we want because life should only feel good. The danger of insisting that feelings should guide our life is that soon we're incapable of doing anything difficult because we don't feel like doing it. But the opposite prepares us to take responsibility. Some feelings need to be controlled, and experiences early in life that help our children learn how to control their emotions and regulate their feelings and work through situations builds their emotional resilience and mental strength. 
Now, I'm not implying that we purposefully put our children in painful situations to build their strength. But I am suggesting that our children, all of us, may be trying to create a road around pain when we should be building ourselves and our children to travel the road before us. You know, 14 years ago, Tesla was not the company you see today. It was an experiment. Tesla was founded in 2003 and included Elon Musk as the fourth employee to join the team as co-founder and chairman of the board. Due to his vision in the design of Tesla's first EV, the Roadster, Musk led the design of numerous components and early on proclaimed the goal of mass-producing electric cars for everyone in the world. Musk started his career with his brother working out of a tiny office designing software that gave street-by-street directions to people who were traveling. He made $22 million when he sold that software. Then he developed and sold PayPal to eBay for $1.5 billion. His share of that sale was $180 million, and he bet it all on Tesla and SpaceX. Now, people think that everything came easy to Musk, that he was entitled to his success. Not so. In 2008, Musk took over as CEO of the company to oversee the official launch of the electric roadster. And while to many it seemed Tesla was on track, things were actually rather dire behind closed doors. Musk had just lost a lawsuit with Fisker. Also, the Tesla cars being produced had massive quality problems, and they were only actually selling a small percentage of the cars being produced because the cars were not operating correctly. The plant was filled with finished cars that were inoperable. Also, in 2008, SpaceX had three launch failures, and it was projected if the next flight was a failure, SpaceX would not survive. While Musk had made hundreds of millions of dollars on his sale of PayPal, he had poured everything he had into Tesla and SpaceX. So on Christmas Day 2008, Tesla was facing bankruptcy. Without additional funding, he was unlikely to keep the doors open. And if you think about it, 2008 was at the height of the recession, and few banks or lenders were helping American automakers. In fact, the U.S. government had stepped in to help some of the automakers survive. Well, Musk put every penny he had into avoiding bankruptcy. He even had to borrow money from his friends just to pay for his rent at the time. Luckily, the fourth flight of SpaceX was successful. Finally, on Christmas evening at 6 p.m., Musk got word that NASA granted SpaceX a very large contract, and Tesla was to receive funding from an investor that was promised months earlier, but it was finally secured. You see, most people think that great brands like Tesla just appeared without sacrifice or risk or difficulties, but not so. And by the way, as of the end of this year, Tesla sits as the most valuable automaker in the world in terms of market value. So, as we end today, remember, we are not just entitled to freedom of any kind, whether it be political, financial, or emotional. It must be earned. And we are not entitled to financial ease during inflationary times. We must pay the price to secure our financial future. So if you haven't started charting a course in life to get out of debt, We'll be hosting a future podcast to help you make that happen. It's critical in this economy to do everything you can to secure your freedom. It is worth the sacrifice.
And remember, now is the time to work so you can sleep when the wind blows, whatever winds may come. Help your children to get exposure to and experience with learning where they don't always have the answers. Praise their effort and don't characterize their talent or abilities as fixed. Encourage their work and process and help them discover the muscles necessary to persevere and regulate their feelings. Strengthen your kids for the road, not the road for the kids. And most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend. And join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.